Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful privilege to have your word before us and to know that it is true, that it is impossible for you to lie to us. And so what we have before us is truth itself, that we can rely on it for our day-to-day living, but we can also rely upon it with our souls. We can have an eternal reliance upon it. Lord, we thank you for these words of Isaiah and we pray that you may apply them to our hearts today. May they not just be a message for the people of Israel, for the Jews alone, but may they be helpful for us as Christians serving Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I don't like is change. I'm not someone who likes to change my ways uh, very much. And so that's why uh, for holidays I don't like going anywhere. I'd rather stay at home with my own bed, my own shower and simply watch some movies, read some books and stay in the house. I always think it's funny that people uh, work all this time getting money to buy things, to accumulate around you and then what do they do when they have some time to enjoy those things? You clear out, you go somewhere else. But I do go on holidays because, of course, my wife doesn't share a similar view, so I take some of my books with me and, uh, and go on holidays, but I don't like change. And so a couple of weeks ago, it was illustrated to me when I went away to a conference last week, two weeks, and, uh, and so I've got to change everything, my environment, so I've got to take my, my razor, my shaving cream, my, um, my shampoo, everything to go with me, and I always wonder whether I'm going to forget something. Of course, I forgot my hair gel. So for a couple of days I was there experiencing change of not having any gel in my hair. But Jill wasn't with me and she's the only one I try to impress with um, hair gel these days so I didn't think it was too much of a loss. But change is something I don't enjoy. But change is something we all experience. It, is, uh, it, it comes upon us whether we choose it or not. Sometimes we choose the change, sometimes we do not. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at a change. And we're going to look at the change that Israel has experienced. And so my first main point this morning is Israel has experienced change. If you're following along in the bulletin, I've got my three main points there. And the first is Israel has experienced change. So to look at Israel's change, as my first point, we need to firstly know what she once was. What was she previously? And Isaiah tells us what she was and what she is now, what she has changed to. But what was she firstly, what was she in the past? Well, we see in verse 21. It says, verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 1, if you've got a Black Church Pew Bible, it's on page 676. What was Isaiah first in the past? Verse 21, see how the faithful city, she was faithful. She was faithful to God. And so much that the entire city was called faithful. And verse 21 also tells us that she was once full of justice. So she was not only faithful to God, she was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. So people were there and they were seeing that justice was administered and that righteousness was taking place, that people were doing acts of righteousness. And it was quite a good city then. So he gives an illustration of verse 22. What were they previously? He says, your silver... You are silver. You are something very valuable. You are a good, precious metal. And not only that, you are choice wine in the past. Verse 22. Not just any wine, choice wine. You're good wine. 
And so one of the only other drinks besides water in, in that time was wine and so that was seen to be something very appetising. So the city, we can understand, Israel, was something quite valuable in that it was silver but it was also a pleasing place to be. It was like choice wine. But that has all changed. Change has happened to Israel. That's what they were. They were faithful, full of justice, righteous, like silver and like wine, choice wine. But now what is she? Well, verse 21 starts telling us, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell on her, but now murderers. These people have turned from God and as a result they are no longer faithful, they are considered prostitutes where they have turned away from the person that they are meant to be faithful to and are now serving other gods. They have followed off after other gods rather than the god that they should be worshipping. And once that happens, once their relationship is broken on a, a vertical level with God, then they start to have relationships breaking on a horizontal level. Once you fall out with God, you start to have relationships breaking down across the board with those around you and that's where we see what's happening. Murderers are there now. There used to be justice, there used to be righteousness there but now they are murderers. They're hating one another. They're taking advantage of one another. They may not actually be killing each other but they're definitely harbouring hatred in their heart which Jesus then later on tells us is as good as breaking the sixth commandment as murdering someone and that's what these people are starting to do. Instead of loving each other they're turning into murderers, hating one another. And the nice silver that they are has changed then. He says in verse 22, it has become dross, it has become dirty and the choice wine it's being diluted down with water so that it is, it is pretty much useless. It's not worth anything now and it's definitely not choice wine. Is that the only thing that's happened? No, he continues, verse 23, Isaiah tells us what has happened to this city. Your rulers are rebels. They are rebelling against God. They are unfaithful. They are rebels. They are companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. These rulers who are meant to be administering justice have become thieves because they love chasing after money. They love it when people bribe them and so that they can get that money, so that they can uh, administer justice in a, a wrong way, so that they are unjust, and that they actually start chasing after these gifts. So it's not like you know, some people bribe and they, the person wasn't expecting a bribe, but the bribe is offered, and the person goes, oh, the sinful nature swells up, and they go, oh, maybe I will take it. I wasn't looking for it, but I will take the bribe. But these guys aren't just doing that, they're chasing after gifts. They're actually saying, and I know uh, some countries, it's pretty well known that uh, the people in justice expect a bribe. If you're going to get justice, you have to offer a bribe. They actually chase it and they want it. And that's what the state of Israel has become, where these people are thieves and so they aren't administering justice anymore. And what does that mean then? It means that particularly uh, disadvantaged people suffer in verse 23, no longer justice is happening and so what does that mean? They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Who is very unlikely to be able to offer a bribe to get justice? It's those orphans, those people without fathers. There's no source of income coming in because the father isn't there and 
the widows. They have no husband to provide a source of income. So when someone commits an injustice against them, when someone sins against them, they have no recourse with the judges because they can't afford the bribe. And this is always one way of telling the state of a culture is how are widows and orphans treated? Are they treated well or are they overlooked and taken advantage of because they have no power? And sometimes you think with the legal system in Western countries where if you can pay enough and get a really top-notch lawyer, you will get off. And that's when you start to see justice breaking down where it becomes not about justice, it becomes about who can pay the most, who is wealthy enough and the wealthy get justice and the people who are poor don't get justice. And that's what's happening here in Israel. They've changed from being just to being unjust. So they've changed. Is that the end of the story? They've changed from being good to being bad. Is that it? Does Isaiah finish there? No. My second main point is that God declares he will change Israel back. God wants to change them back from the bad state they have gone into. So that's what we're going to look at now. God's going to change them back. Firstly, we want to ask then is, can he? Can he change them back? Has he got the power to do so? Can he do it? What does um, Bob the Builder say? Can we build it? Yes, we can. Can God build it? Can God make the change? And Isaiah says, yes, he can. Look at the way that he describes him. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares. Those three titles given to God show his power. The first one, the Lord. It's the word in Hebrew for master, for someone who is in charge. God is in charge and he can change things if he wants them to happen. And then the next one, the Lord Almighty. It's the NIV's chosen way of translating the, the, word, uh, the title for God where it has his name, Yahweh, and then the word for armies or hosts right after it. And so some translations have the Lord of hosts, but it's main, meaning the Lord Almighty, the Lord who has armies angelic armies behind him if he wants to and he has other armies he can bring armies of people in if he wants to this God can make change if he wants to because he is the Lord of hosts the Lord of armies the Lord Almighty and doesn't finish there he's got three titles here the Lord the Lord Almighty the Mighty One of Israel often this title is used as a, a, a good thing for Israel But here, of course, God is unhappy with them and the mighty one is turning against them. The word might there is a word for strength, a sort of a variant of it, which often is used for horses and bulls, so animals of great power. And so it's emphasising God's power there as well. Not just that he has armies and hosts, but he is a powerful God himself. He doesn't need the armies, he is mighty in himself as well. So he's the master, he's the lord of armies and he's the mighty one with great strength. So can he do it? If he declares, I'm going to change them back? Yes, he can. He can do it because he is the Lord, the mighty one of Israel, the Lord Almighty. So why would God want to change them back? He's got the power to do it, but why does he bother changing Israel back? Well, Isaiah tells us. God tells us through Isaiah why. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel, declares... 
Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. God is going to do it because he wants to get relief from the sins that people are committing against him. When people sin against us, we feel the torment of that sin. And God is the same in some respects. When we sin against him, it hurts him. It torments him. And he wants to get relief from those sins. He wants to turn them back so that they are no longer sinning against him. And he wants to avenge himself on on these people that are uh, hurting him. Just like we, when people sin against us, we want to avenge ourselves. We want justice to be uh, made against those people who have sinned against us. And so God wants the same thing as well. That's why he's going to commit change here. He can do it and he wants to do it because he wants relief and he wants to avenge himself. So what will be the result of God changing them? What's he going to change? They're in one state, they're in another. Is he going to change them into a third state? No, he's going to change them back. He's going to clean his people up. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. He's going to put them back to that state that they were, where they were silver, where they were choice wine. He's going to take away their impurities. He's going to stop them from being horrible people who are taking advantage of those around them, sinning against the people that they should be loving and instead he's going to put them back to those people that they were before where they administered justice and were righteous and faithful and not rebels. And so that's what he says he's going to do. He describes how he's going to do it in verse 26. He's going to remove all their impurities and he will, in verse 26, restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors, as at the beginning. He's going to put it back to the previous state where Israel was known for a place of justice. Now what sort of state is he referring to here in Israelite history? Well most people think it's going back to the times of David and Solomon. Particularly Solomon where the Israelite kingdom was never like that previously and it was never like that in the future. And Solomon administered great justice. He had great wisdom. The Bible describes him as the wisest man that has ever been and ever will be. He is the one who, who never, no one since has ever been as wise as Solomon. And you see an example of his justice, his great justice with the, the two mothers who come with two children, uh, with uh, two babies. One has died, one hasn't died. And how does he sort out the justice there between these two women? Well, he says cut one baby in half. And what is the result? Well, the, the mother, who really is the mother of the baby, says, oh, no, 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 preserve the life of the child. Let the other woman have it. And so we see justice being administered very wisely there. And so God is saying, I'm going to go back to that period. I'm going to restore your judges as in days of old, your counsellors as at the beginning. And so afterward, once I do this, what will happen? You will be called the city of righteousness the faithful city. See that? Those words, righteousness and faithfulness, what were they described, Israel, in verse 21 before they changed? Verse 21, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. That's the state that she was. Then she changed. And now God is saying, you're going back to being a city of righteousness, 
a city of faithfulness. Same words used there to describe them once God has acted. So how is he going to do this? He's going to get them back to that state? How will he do it? Well, he tells us how he's going to do it. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. He says if this is going to happen, a redemption has to take place. I am going to be the redeemer, the one who gets the people back by paying the ransom price. And so it will happen with justice. He's not going to knock out those bad judges in some way that is unjust. God is a God of justice and righteousness. So when he acts, he does so with justice and with righteousness. And so he will pay the price that is necessary to get them back from the bad state to the good state again. And he does it for those who are penitent. He does it with repentance there in verse 27. Her penitent ones with righteousness. God chooses to act by redeeming those who are repentant. He chooses to use repentance as his way of changing people back to the state that they were. Is he going to do it for everyone though? Is God going to change all of bad Israel back to being good? No, he won't do it for everyone. He will purge some of their dross and take away their impurities, but others he will do something else to. And that's what happens in verse 28 to the end of the chapter. But rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. Those who continue in rebellion against God and sinners against him will both be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord, they're going to perish, they're going to die. And verse 29, he continues talking about them. You'll be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. Sacred oaks there is referring to tree worship and uh, the different types of worship that the, the Canaanites did, that the Israelites started picking up on, of false gods. And he's saying that you, if you're going to do that, you'll be ashamed of those, those oaks that you delighted in. You'll be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. And then what will happen? Verse 30, you will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. Isaiah takes an illustration of what they are doing by worshipping trees and having these gardens to make themselves fruitful and then uses it as an illustration to say whether it will give them any sort of lasting benefit. And it says no. He says you will be like an oak with fading leaves. If you trust in those gods, they aren't going to sustain you. You're going to be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water, without sustenance. You'll eventually die. And what will happen then? You'll dry up. Verse 31, the mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. The person who thinks he's so mighty and strong and worshipping such strong gods, false gods, with trees and with gardens, he will burn up with no one to quench the fire, with an eternal fire. That's what God says has happened to Israel and what he will do. My third and last main point is to ask whether God has done it. Has God done this? He's prophesied about it here. Has he done it? Well, my third main point is God has, is and will make the change. God has, is and will make the change. God did do what he promised here 
to some extent. In the past, in the time of Israel, he did accomplish some of these things here. He cleaned up the error, the unrighteousness, the unfaithfulness of these people through purging them with foreign armies coming in and taking over and particularly the Babylonian army came in and took people away as, as slaves and then he redeemed them back. He brought them back with justice. He made sure that Cyrus was willing to let them go. He didn't go in and, and fight to get them back. No, Cyrus willingly let them go back. And then he, he restored judges as in days of old, counsellors. He gave them Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, these people to lead the people who were righteous and wanting to administer justice. And the people who came back, they came back as, uh, as it says there, Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. They came back very repentant of what had happened to them. A lot of those people who went back to the Israel out of Babylon, they went back, they were repentant of what they'd done and they tried to do the right thing. And many were completely destroyed by the armies that came in as well. So that part of the prophecy was fulfilled as well. God said he would thoroughly purge away, but he also said some I will destroy. And many Israelites never made it to Babylon because they were completely destroyed. But then sin emerged again. They didn't stay a faithful city. They didn't stay righteous. And it's not long, if you're reading Nehemiah towards the end, before Nehemiah is dragging people around by their hair and getting upset at them because they're doing the wrong thing. And so it wasn't completely fulfilled. And so then we see Jesus came and he continued that change process that had begun. He continued it as he came and removed impurities, as he cleaned up the silver, took away the dross. He did that at the cross where he was taking away sins so that we could be righteous rather than unrighteous. And he gave us judges and counsellors as Isaiah promised would happen. He gave us himself as the great judge and a great counsellor but he also gave the apostles and other people in the church so that they could have the counsel and the justice that is required. But then we see that people still sin, the early church, they got into all kinds of error. If you read the New Testament, most of the New Testament is written against uh, problems that are going on in the church. It's not, uh, some people think that if you go back to the early church and study it, that's where you'll find the, the right answers. But it's not long uh, before people start getting into problems. And we still have some fulfilment of this happening today as well as the Christian church. Today, people are still being purged away of their impurities. People in this very room now who call themselves Christians are part of the fulfilment of this prophecy here where their dross has been purged away by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by coming to him as a penitent one and being redeemed as they put their faith in Jesus as the one who paid the ransom so that we're no longer enslaved to Satan and to sin, but instead are serving the living God. The ransom was paid at the cross. But we still see even today, we haven't come to the golden age of the church in some way that we are all stopping sinning. No, we still sin as Christians. We still do the wrong thing. And sometimes we lack the judges and counsellors that uh, people have had in the past. We always have that judge and counsellor of Jesus Christ, but some churches really do struggle to find someone who is going to help them out. And so we look forward to the future 
fulfilment of this prophecy as well. We experience some of the fulfilment here today, but we look forward to that time when things will really be fulfilled that Isaiah has prophesied here, where people will be completely restored and no longer sin against God, where justice will always be administered and where those who continue in their sin against God will be destroyed forever. And that, of course, is Judgment Day and the eternal life that happens afterwards. That's when this prophecy will be completely fulfilled. Then people who disobey God will burn together with their works with no one to quench the fire for eternity and those who are penitent will be righteous forever. They will be there with justice in heaven all the time taking place. So where do you stand in relation to this prophecy? You individually here this morning, where do you stand? God is acting as we speak to affect change in this world. He is still administering change. A lot of us don't like change, I don't like change, but he is making changes for the good. Where do you stand when God is making change? You can be someone who persists in rebellion, persists in unfaithfulness to God and breaks the relationships with those around you. Do evil for the sake of pleasure and for money. That's what these people were doing here. They're just chasing after money all the time and that is a temptation we all face. The money and pleasures in this world are very tempting. If that is you, if you are going to persist in rebellion against God and and be unfaithful to him, heed the warning of verses 28 to the end of that chapter. You will be broken with other rebels and sinners You will perish. Those things you trust in, those sacred oaks that you may have, you may not worship your garden and the tree in the backyard, but you worship something if you aren't worshipping God. And that thing that you are worshipping, it may give you some sustenance to live on at the moment and some drive to live, but it will eventually fade away and you will fade with it. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. You will dry up and you may think you're mighty enough to stand against God. He's the mighty one of Israel, but I'm mighty myself. But what does it say, verse 31? The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. There is a fire, it is real, and it is not quenched. And it is for those who are rebels and unfaithful to God and do not want to turn. But if you do want to turn, if you fear the fire and you fear to displease God, you can turn, just as these people are described here, that the penitent ones were redeemed with righteousness. If you come before God this morning in repentance, admitting that you are wrong, that you have done evil things against God and against the people around you that you should have loved instead of murdering them with anger in your heart and stealing from them and taking advantage of them. If you repent of those things and trust in the ransom that Jesus paid at the cross, you can be redeemed. You can be forgiven of your sins. God will not punish you. Instead, he will remove all your impurities and take them away. And that should be what we desire as Christians. 
I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to repent and trust in Jesus' ransom. And if you are a Christian, embrace this thoroughly purging process that Jesus will be acting upon you. When you become a Christian, you have to give up many things that the world will encourage you to continue in and that your heart will encourage you to continue in. But you should be willing to have God turn his hand against you. That's what it says there in verse, uh, verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. If you're going to get better, God has to turn his hand against you and remove those things, those sins that you love so much. And sometimes he does it through chastisement, through discipline, and it hurts. But if you are really wanting to follow God, you should be ready to be cleaned up no matter what it takes. Cleaning up a dirty silver plate with dross on it takes hard work. And it's not very comfortable for the plate as it's doing that. And sometimes that happens to us as Christians. One of the hardest prayers I find to pray is to pray to God that he will make me holy with whatever it takes, whether it takes suffering and pain, whatever it takes, Lord, make me holy. It scares me to pray that because I wonder what God might do to remove some of those sins in my life. But I want him to do what he's promised here, that he will purge away the dross. I don't want dross on me. I don't want to be diluted wine. I want to be choice wine. And so if it hurts to make me holy, do it, Lord. Where do you stand with God and his changing process? He's making change today if you will have it, if you will repent, trust in the ransom of Jesus Christ and give up those sins that you love and cherish. Let us speak with our Lord now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who does not change but that you do change us. Lord, we were created very good in your creation, but sin has contaminated us. Sin has made us unclean and we are now considered rebels against you unless we trust in Jesus' sacrifice as the ransom for us. We thank you that you did not throw everyone into unquenchable fire so that you could get relief from the sins that people are committing against you. But you in your mercy and your graciousness acted and brought change in people long ago in the time of Israel and in the time of Jesus and then in the time of the church, the Christian church for the last 2,000 years and even today you in your mercy are changing people. Lord, may you change everyone in this room this morning. May everyone here be someone who is a penitent one, someone who is sorry for their sins, someone who has been redeemed by the ransom that Jesus paid at the cross for sin. And Lord, may we all love to have our evil purged away. May you thoroughly clean us up as we look forward to that day when we will sin no longer and where justice will be administered for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.